1: Small businesses lose an average of $10,000 per small business employee, and small business owners spend 25% of their time on HR. Time better spent taking care of employees, customers, and building their business. This is costing small business owners valuable time and money. Cavendish HR is solving this by delivering HR to companies with 49 or fewer people across the U.S., through a voice-enabled AI platform along with a HR business partner. Cavendish HR, focus on your business. We've got your HR. Before we start the podcast, I want to remind you to join my text community at 830-400-4523. I am texting about HR and startups and entrepreneurship and other interesting items. Send me your questions on these and other items. So once again, text me at 830-400-4523. Now on to this great podcast episode. Hello and welcome to Jason Kavnis Experience. I'm your host, Jason Kavnis. Our guest today is Star Carbon. Star, are you ready to be great today? Yes, I am. Star Carbon is an innovative technology executive and agile product and management expert with a breadth of experience directing organization and technology transformation for both government and commercial enterprises. An ardent advocate of servant leadership, Star is frequently called upon to write about technology delivery needs and how to expand the technology field for women. In 2019, Star founded Carbon Solutions, a technology management firm committed to delivering complicated technology products better for clients. An Army veteran, Star also serves on the Texas Governor's Commission for Women and other various nonprofit boards that are committed to enhancing youth development. Star holds an MBA from the University of Texas, Austin, and is working toward a Ph.D. in computer science from Southern Methodist University. She happily resides in the Austin area with a husband, an Austin firefighter, with and army veteran in addition to the three children. Star, thank you for being here today. I really appreciate it.
0: Thanks for having me, Jason.
1: So, Star, let's first I want to talk about your, your, the Texas Women's Commission. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about how you got involved with that and what's that about?
0: Sure. Uh, I got involved with the Women's Commission actually through another a fellow veteran who uh, worked in the governor's office specifically. And when he heard about my background as an Army veteran, also a woman in tech, he had mentioned uh, that there were several different state boards that would might be appealing uh, because uh, the governor's office at the time really wanted to have more diversity on state boards, uh, have some gender parity as well. So he encouraged me to take a look at the different boards, and one of them was the Women's Commission. And so I have served on the commission for about four years. We are appointed uh, by the governor, and we represent various counties across the state of Texas. So specifically, my area is Williamson County, so just north of Austin, and uh every two years we serve two-year terms so I'm on my second term and the uh, governor's office and the the Texas First lady they set the agenda uh, which are focus areas for us to uh, promote um, to look into and so uh, one of our uh, lists of our agenda items are bringing more awareness to the human trafficking issues in our great state as well as uh you know, advocating for programs and supporting programs that get more girls and women into STEM, as well as bringing awareness to uh, veterans' issues uh, specifically. So w- when I heard that that lineup of an agenda, it was it was uh, not hard to say yes.
1: So how does one get nominated? I'm, I'm sure this not just pick up random people off the street. Hey, sure. hey, hey, Star Carbon, I've never seen you before. It can I be the board. How does that work? I mean, here you set sure. yourself up to be in the, in the process, right? So
0: interesting enough, and and I didn't even. Uh, myself until I was approached, didn't know that there was this uh, large list of state boards that anyone really who's a Texas resident can apply to be a part of. So some of those seats are confirmed by the Texas Ledge. Uh, the Women's Commission is appointed by the Appointments Office in the Governor's Office. So it really is—it's uh, like many things. You can go online. Uh, look up different state boards there are well about a hundred in the state of texas but there's one application process which is nice uh, so if you go to the governor's website uh, there's an application that you can fill out and submit and then uh, based off of the appointment process that's how you're selected so i submitted an application and got a call several months later
1: So way off the subject, but human trafficking. I think most people in America think human trafficking, that's, you know, Asia, third world countries, but it's actually a pretty, you know, I won't say big deal, but a pretty bad deal here in the U S, right?
0: Absolutely. Uh, Unfortunately, in the state of Texas, I think what a lot as well, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, when I think when people think of human trafficking in Texas, there, uh, there's a focus on human trafficking across the state border between uh, obviously Texas and Mexico. But there are human trafficking rings within our cities across the state where human traffickers are targeting, uh, high school women for the, you know, high school girls, uh, locally in their community to traffic across the state. So this is sadly, uh, a problem right in our backyard, not just south of the border or like you noted in another country.
1: And you talk about your work on nonprofit boards for youth development. Is that separate from the Texas Commissions? These separate boards you're it on. It is.
0: Yes, it is. Uh, so I am active in our in, in my community, uh, supporting a different, uh, whether as a volunteer or as a board member. I'm a volunteer of Girl Start, which really focuses on uh, science and technology programs for our elementary and middle school and high school age girls. I have two daughters myself. Who have benefited uh, personally from those programs. Uh, I have also, I'm on the board for the first cavalry division uh, scholarship foundation, which provides scholarships to high school students. So that's, uh, and, and that, and I'm, I'm a board member of that board because I served with the first cavalry division in Iraq. So I can, I continue to be very in touch with the division that I was a part of in the army.
1: I remember 25 years. I spent four years in first cab. By far, the best unit I've ever been. Like it's not even close. The first cab is by far the best in everything. It um, was
0: hands down the the best experience uh, for a young officer. Absolutely. If only the whole army
1: was like that, no one would get out.
0: Oh yeah, I'm I am such a cab soldier that I I joked with my husband that uh, when it's my time to go, bury me. Uh, with the cab soldiers, you know, uh, the caisson following behind me. So, yeah, I'm, I'm cab through and through.
1: So, Star, how long have you been involved
0: in tech? Gosh, uh, 20 years. 20 years. Actually, uh, I'd like to say that uh, I was tech chose me. Mm-hmm. I didn't choose tech. Uh, when I uh, I enlisted first in the Army Reserves when I was in college and my path, I was a I was an Army medic. And so my path was actually to be a nurse. And, uh, I was also on an army ROTC nursing scholarship. And then my senior year of college realized I didn't want to be a nurse. I wanted to go into the military. I'm a third generation military service member. Uh, so it's just what we do, but I realized that nursing just wasn't for me. Bless the nurses out there. I hold that position in the highest, highest regard. So I, I went to my battalion commander, <clears throat> excuse me, and said, I don't want to be an army nurse, but I do want to go in the army. That's all I wanted to do was just get my commission and go into the army. Uh, what, what branch can I go into? And so I wrote up a list like, you know, most uh, young people going into the military. When you get your commission, you sort of get a choice of five. And of course it's always based off of the, the army needs. Yeah. And uh, for whatever reason, the army said that I would excel in the signal corps, And uh, I hadn't even taken a computer class before. Uh, But I I do like to believe that in most cases, the Army knows best and uh, ended up doing five years in the Signal Corps, which is, you know, for most people that don't know, is the IT branch of the Army. And it it literally was hands down the the best experience uh, I could have had in my my young career. So when I left the military, it was just naturally that I would go into IT in the civilian world. And I haven't I haven't left.
1: So I'm going to get your, your take on this. So and I could be this wrong, but I think stats show like, you know, like females in like elementary, junior high, they're really interested in STEM, right? Like 90% of them.
0: But
1: <laughs> well, that drops down like maybe 10, 15, 20 in high school. I mean, a short amount of time, a lot of them just drop off. Why do you think that is?
0: So yes, you're exactly right. Uh, there's, uh, it usually starts in middle school. And I, I actually have a, a pretty personal example of that from myself and from my, I have, I have a daughter my, both of my daughters are in the seventh and sixth grade. My oldest daughter is very interested in technology and she's in a technology class. And she expressed to me, uh, just, uh, the other week, she's the only girl in her class. And one of the things that frustrates her the most is she's scared to ask questions because she's afraid of looking stupid
1: yeah, you hear in that a front lot. of
0: the other boys. Mm-hmm. And for a 13 year old to, you know, to, to hear that from my own daughter, when you know, and that's that's something that you know, as women in the tech field, we experience. You're like
1: like <laughs> I trained her better than feel it. You know, <laughs> I, my daughter should not be saying that. Exactly. I, I've, not, I've been like I've ingrained into her.
0: Exactly. And even though I've had my husband and I have had this influence on her, we're aware of the issue. We know of the statistics. To to see it firsthand, uh, you know, from my thirteen year old, and you can see where it starts from there, and so. A lot of it is, I I do, I feel like that a lot of girls who go in, um, especially, uh, girls of color, they go in and they don't see a representation of themselves, whether it be through gender, whether it be through ethnicity or race, they don't see a representation of themselves in the class. And so there's a feeling, there's an imposter syndrome. There's a feeling that they don't belong. And so, uh, I know that I felt that I was extremely interested in science and technology when I was in high school. Uh But I, you know, it for me at, at that young age, those interests weren't encouraged or promoted. Uh, I remember coming home and, and talking to my mother and saying, you know, this math is really difficult. And and she's saying, I know I didn't do well in it either. It's OK if you don't do well in it. Just just pass. You know, so I think I think that of well, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough to know that curriculum. Therefore, I'm not worthy of being a part of of, of that learning path.
1: Or even the young age, you know, a boy go get, you know, five year old boy goes muddy. Oh, he's just a boy. Young girl, five years old gets muddy. What are you doing? You know, exactly. go, go clean yourself up and put in front of your princess dress and exactly. you know, we'll make some tea. We're
0: supposed to be nice and kind and clean and sweet and, and never rock the boat and demure and polite. And so I think I think you're you're hitting the nail on the head. That that unfortunately goes into a lot as to why the numbers of girls and women still remain low to this day in
1: so I remember a while ago, I tell the story all the time. I was watching like a webinar or something from Sheryl Sandberg, right? A TEDx talk. And she was talking and she like, you know, I was at a grocery store somewhere and this Lake Henry and said, hey, I was at your webinar. Some talk like a couple months ago, a year ago. Oh, well, how do you like it? Actually, I was disappointed. What do you mean you're disappointed? Well, at the end, you said, no more questions. All the guys raised their hands and you, and you kept them asking, talk call on them. All those females raised, you said, and kept their hands low. And Sheryl, like, If I'm even if even I'm doing it like what chance do the men have not doing the right thing? You know, right. I'm sure I'm I'm talking about lean in and I'm, you know, doing the things that men are doing. Right.
0: Yes. Yeah. I mean, I I see it. You know, it's it is interesting because it's not that, you know, the traits of of, of what those men were doing are bad. Uh, That's how they get the answers. That's how they you know, that's how you earn the position and the place to be there. It's just not as encouraged. Uh, Especially when I was growing up, it it, it wasn't encouraged to do as as a as a young lady, which for me, I think, which is why the the military for me was so pivotal uh, into developing the person that I that I am today. And, of course, the kind of woman that I hope my daughters grow up to be, where even if they're the only girl in the class, regardless of what class it is, that they are, they're not going to tolerate not understanding something, that they're going to raise their hand, they're going to ask questions, they're going to work hard to get the answer versus being concerned that they're just not smart enough to to be a part of the conversation.
1: I mean, even like in job search, you know, we use that show. If a female gets a job, 90% of the time they don't ask, they just take the money, you know, thank you very much. That show, you know, a guy can like just do something basic, start to work on time after six months, I need a raise. A female can close like a hundred million dollar deal or be recognized later. Like, how do we get females to start asking and say, hey, you know, like, give me the value I need or deserve?
0: I think it it starts with the management, with leadership. Uh, I've, as as an executive leader myself who has uh, managed, you know, all range of people, I I am obviously sensitive, you know, to that very thing to where um, I think a lot of it is in. How comfortable are you making your team feel when it comes to asking questions, right? Are you, you know, um, a lot of people, there's extroverts who have no problem going, um, excuse me, I've got questions about X, Y, and Z. And then there are introverts who need time to process things, who it's not that they're not engaged or they're not asking a question, they're processing it. And then later they're going to ask a question. So a lot of times I think it starts with management. Having one on ones with, uh, you know, with every member of their team. But I think one of the most powerful questions that you can ask people on your team, especially women, uh, at the end of a conversation, uh, like a one on one is what, what can I do for you? You know, a lot of times I think when we do one on ones or we manage people, uh, it's, I need this. I need this. I need you to do this. I need you to do X, Y, and Z. And a lot of times we don't ask as managers to our teams. Well, is there anything that I can do to help make you a success? Or, hey, I noticed that during this discussion, you you didn't have any questions. I just want to make sure that uh, that there weren't any additional questions you may have had after the fact. So, I think as a manager, as a team leader, or as an executive, uh, si- silence is not always compliance in those cases.
1: So you know, now, you no, know, diverse is a big thing. Has been for a while. They always say you know I have a diverse team you know don't hire ten white software developers, but you know finding and hiring female developers is not the easiest thing, right? First it's of all, there's easy. very few of them. Sure. And first of all, like a startup, you know, you know you can't afford to pay them. You know, so how do you like how does that go? When you mind how do you find female developers and all that kind of stuff?
0: I think and and this is you you touched upon a very um, I, this is a lifelong passion of mine to to combat. Um. I do think that a lot of times recruiters seek the lowest hanging fruit, meaning they seek the the, the people who are the, the easiest people to find for those positions, which are mostly white men. And I, in a former, in a, in a previous company that I worked in, where I where I was an executive, I was hiring, and we needed to hire quickly and build out a team of software engineers and developers and testers. And uh, like you noted, especially in the Austin area, when you're competing with Facebook and Google and, you know, those guys and gals are very difficult to find. And the recruiter, I remember being very specific that I was going to approach hiring utilizing the Rooney rule. And the Rooney rule is actually started in the NFL where, you know, in some, I wasn't going to make a decision on a candidate unless I had felt that I had a list, a diversified list of qualified candidates to make a judgment from. So if all of the applications that the recruiter sent me had one type of candidate, I was not going to make a decision until I had had women, et cetera, you know, on to to review and examine. And I remember the recruiter specifically said, well, you're looking for an IT unicorn star. Um, You know, that panel of diversity just does not exist uh, in this market. And so I really started to question his recruiting practices. I said, well, where are you going? Oh, you're going to LinkedIn. I can go to LinkedIn. Yeah. Oh, you're going to Indeed. I can go into Indeed for a tenth of the cost that I'm paying you to search for candidates on, on, on Indeed. Um, I really also questioned our HR team's recruiting practices in the sense of where are they going? You know, they were going to UT. They were going to AM. They were going to. Um, Where everyone Google, else is going? Yeah, Google conferences that cost one k for a ticket, right? Nobody was going to historically black colleges. Yeah, if I'm in Texas. I would be
1: going to Prairie View, Texas, Absolutely. Southern, Texas you know, Women's University. We have Huston
0: Tilliston right here, right here yeah. in Austin. We've got Incarnate Word in San Antonio, Our Lady of Lake. We've got Prairie View A and M, not that far, and so. A lot of times when recruiters say, well, that's just not possible, well, you really have to question well, where are you looking? Yeah, to me, that's because
1: code. They're lazy.
0: It absolutely. And so, you know, they're looking to turn around a position fast. So sure, naturally. But these recruiters sometimes are are charging companies five, 10K
1: lots of money. To to
0: lots find of money. these people. And they're gonna go for the easiest people. So I think a lot of it is it's a you know, um, and I think the other problem is companies wait for the candidates to come to them. They wait for the diversity to come to them. You no, know, you have to go. You want diversity. You need to go where the diversity is. You need to go to local meetups. You need to go to, you know, historically black colleges. You need to go to universities that don't get all the prime attention because they're not in the top 10, you know, in U.S. news for computer science, et cetera. So. Um, I'd be hard pressed for someone to really tell me that that the talent isn't out there. Um, you just have to know where to find it.
1: I agree. So, Star, what is agile project management?
0: So, agile project management is a method of of iterate, what I like to call iterative delivery. So, um, in the in the golden days of project management, we, we had practices known as waterfall. And you see this common uh, a lot, especially with really large multi-million-dollar projects, and where you have a you know one month or two month long requirements gathering session. Okay, now we've got a hundred percent of the requirements for the project. Uh, we're going to go into one or two months of design, and so by the time you come out of this multi-million-dollar project, it could be one to two years down the road, and so much has changed because there's been such upfront. Planning and requirements gathering that money is wasted and that usually what is delivered is no longer what the customer wants. So there through the um, Agile Manifesto uh, about 20 years ago, there was this concept, and it really started in the software development world of iterative delivery, that you go to market. With something that you feel is good enough. So you, instead of spending two months in a requirements gathering process for an 18 month long project, you break up the work into iterative delivery that ultimately can tie to immediate business value. sprints. Yes, absolutely. So you there, some of the terminology and the way of executing agile product and project management can be in the form of sprint cycles. You hear a Kanban. You'll hear continuous improvement, continuous delivery, but it's this idea that if you hire me to deliver on something, you know, I'm going to focus on sort of a minimal viable product, a pilot, so that you get real tangible results as soon as possible so that you can make a decision on, well, do I continue going to the next iteration or do we pivot immediately to something else? And that ultimately saves you just a ton, a ton of money up front because you're trying to get something as soon as possible into the customer's hands.
1: Star, what is your definition of tech?
0: Oh, gosh. It's such a broad, that's a great question. It's such a broad definition. I think when people think of tech, the word tech, I know, especially here in Austin, you think of startups, you think of um, products or capabilities that have artificial intelligence and machine learning and or 5G, they're latest in cutting edge. That's what, you know, I think tech, the, the word tech has a youthful connotation to it as well. It was funny. I was talking to a startup founder and uh, I I, had, I was saying IT, 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 or saying technology. And he says, I just need to interrupt you, Star. It was my favorite. Um, I just need to interrupt you and say that the word is tech, uh, if you come out here to Silicon Valley or in the Austin startup circles and you start talking IT, you say technology, that's a very old school idea of, of tech. You need to use the word tech. Um, so it's interesting that you asked that question uh, because I think tech doesn't just have a youthful connotation. It's, you know, if it has um, wires or Bluetooth capability and there's a processor behind it, uh, it's tech.
1: So start. You mentioned like AI, VR, five G. Of all the "quote unquote" new tech coming out, what, what excites you the most?
0: Uh, machine learning. Absolutely. Uh, it's it's a it's a personal project of mine in the sense that uh, I've gone back to school to uh, you know to do more in depth study in the computer science field, and and my personal focus is machine learning. Uh, especially, you know, when you look at prediction capability, uh, the machine learning sciences for the social good, uh, when you talk about being able, for example, to predict uh, risk or spread of COVID-19, for example. So I think what excites me the most is the artificial intelligence and machine learning capabilities for the social good and how this can be applied for the social good.
1: Start quickly. Let's talk about the disconnect between what I call non-tech founders and tech people, right? Mm-hmm. I think a non-tech founder myself would tell a tech person, Hey, I need this done. In my mind, it get be done, you know, quickly. Right. Yeah. And then the tech founder, or the tech person I well, really to know can be done easily. I, a good example. Like I think if you, if you told a normal person, go open this door over here. Hey, Hey, Jason, go open the door. I'm going to go open the door. Right. A tech person, you know, I say, Hey, stand straight, turn to the left 90 degree angle, yeah. take your hand out, you know, Take two steps forward, put your hand forward, you know, turn the, the doorknob ten degrees counterclockwise, mm-hmm. push with you know X amount of force, right? And you know, most people don't get that, right? Most people don't communicate that, right? So how do you how do you solve that disconnect?
0: I, I think it's interesting. Yeah, the, the tech mind is definitely a program mind where you're thinking of all of the myriad of different ways to execute or solve a problem. Uh, and you know, sometimes I mean my husband even my husband will be the first to tell you that he tells me often, Star, I just want to know the time, not how to build the watch. Right. And, uh, and that's, that, a good that's yeah, that, that's, that's the trap that a lot of us in tech, technology that, that we do fall into. And, uh, it's, 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 I, I like to say that a large part of what I do is there's a, there's a lot of what customers want. My goal is to first deliver to them what they need. And so I do think that, you know, that's 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 a large part of where my business and my consulting services come in is I have the privilege of knowing and speaking geek, but I also understand how to translate that to a client, to a customer, into, you know, some type of analogy or metaphor that they can easily understand. So, you know, if something is, you know, taking a long time to deliver or develop, or something seems easy. Uh you know one of one of the gifts I like to say that that I've worked hard to achieve is being able to translate level of effort and difficulty into more layman's terms because that that definitely is a gap that that we that we have in yeah, in the tech world. Think,
1: yeah. yeah. There's yeah. a lot of non-tech Founders need to do a better job understanding, but I think a lot of tech people need to do a better job, too, of translating, like, you know, okay.
0: Absolutely. I
1: understand this geek conversation, but maybe, like, translate or something. I think don't do a good job it either.
0: Yeah. Well, I think a lot of times, too, you hear of all of the new technologies that are out today, artificial intelligence, machine learning. That's, that's the hot topics. Uh, a few years ago, it was blockchain. So what I think a lot of, you know, uh, business leaders say is, you know, i I, and you know, it's the mantra of innovate or die. And nowadays, you know, whether you're a furniture company, whether you're an HR company, at the end of the day, you're going to be a tech company. And, and that's, that's just the the sad reality of yeah, things. Yeah, when people right? say like,
1: this company, is a tech company. How's that possible? There's no way everyone's a tech company, right? It, yeah, absolutely. Everyone's a tech company, everyone's a media company, yeah, right? Whether,
0: whether it's in your marketing, whether it's the data analytics where you're trying to understand, your customer base, where you're trying to better understand how to promote or build or sell your products, you know, there's going to be at this stage, the the opportunities are endless for any type of company. But I do think that there's uh, there's a disconnect with some business leaders where they hear the latest tech, they're worried that they're behind the curve, they know they have this problem, right? Like they're trying to gain actionable insight into this problem so that they can pivot or make better decisions they try to fit the problem into the tech versus the tech into the problem and so that that is where you see where there's a lot of investment made in technology and there's just no delivery on the results because the tech people are saying yeah I can I, I can absolutely build that and it's going to cost x amount and instead of really going I don't know if this is what you need. Yeah, I've never right seen now. a type of
1: person who said, no, I can't yeah. build that. No. Even if I have Not no clue, had, uh, no, no. About no. Taking, like, no, I've never seen one say, no, I can't build it.
0: Yeah. No. Yeah. Or, you know, and I, I've, I've seen it rarely myself. It's, you know, oh, yeah, we can, you know, it's the over promise and under deliver versus really being a partner. And I think that, that that is our you know ethical responsibility, especially when you're delivering projects for the government. That's taxpayers dollars. And I have seen and it was a large part of why I started my own business was I have just seen a gross neglect uh, on, you know, really, what does the customer need versus, oh, this is what you want. I'm going to deliver it. I'm going to deliver it and and just keep charging up the, the, the project amount because you're trying to please the customer and ultimately make money. Versus really focusing on what is, what are they, you know, is what they're really asking for, what they need, and are there other viable, cheaper alternatives that will that will meet what they're looking for?
1: And, you used to have not, and tech cheaper is not always better, right? Correct. I mean,
0: right. That is also do, true. It's you, like a tattoo. Do you want to pay someone, like, you know,
1: three developers, like, we'll say $30 an hour, or do you want to pay one developer $200
0: an hour? Absolutely. You know, you know um, sometimes cheap tech can be like a cheap tattoo. Right? It sounds <laughs> yeah. really good in I, theory. I like that analogy, too, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the results aren't always going to be what you're looking for.
1: Yeah. So any recommendations on people who want to bring on a software developer, what they should be looking for? Or?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're – that, I, and especially in um, – I think people who are, who are, you know, not well-versed in tech, and they're looking to build a website. And a lot of times – uh they'll go to a group that that is just all they do is they build websites and you know it's a 20 50 100k spend that you know most small businesses uh not startups who are backed by venture capital and got a lot of money to throw away but legitimate small businesses who are bootstrapping uh you you do see that a lot it's like why well, I, I need to hire a web developer or i need to hire a software Developer versus really looking at what they're trying to achieve holistically. Uh, you might need a website, but nowadays there's a lot of marketing companies that cater to small businesses that provide a website for a third of the cost. Yeah, or maybe
1: just maybe all you use is a simple landing page.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, and you know they're not looking to deliver the most expensive website to you because that's all that they do is build websites. They're looking at, you know, what you're trying holistically to achieve with websites. So a lot of times what I what I my advice to small companies is outsource. First of all, don't don't try to take that on entirely yourself. Like, like, honestly, if you're looking for a basic Web page which provides information, there are a ton of different services that can offer you. Like if you're going to have a static Web page that's just going to have your company information and that's all you need You know, go to WordPress, go to Wix, right? You can build that absolutely yourself, you know, and it'll cost you $120 a year. But if you are looking for more brand awareness, more dynamic, polished web page, you certainly don't want to become a developer yourself. You know, that's where it it is much more fiscally responsible to outsource those types of things because at the end of the day, you know, probably one of the best pieces of advice that I had gotten from. From a uh, venture capitalist actually was your time is money. And if you are not a software developer, you should not be spending your time doing software development. You need to outsource that. Your time needs to be spent making money for your business. That's the goal. And so, but a lot of people are worried about outsourcing that because there's a cost to that and there absolutely is. And so, but there's also a cost to your time if you're building website, you're not out there promoting your business. You're not out there meeting with clients. So what I, what I always say is outsource. There are a lot of companies out there that cater to small businesses that have marketing plans that provide web basic website or very nice website services for a smaller premium versus I need a software developer. You really, really need to look hard as to why you need to hire someone on your team to do software development. Cause so they're only going to be doing able to do one thing versus outsourcing to a group that can provide you a much larger capability at a smaller price.
1: So start us talk about your own entrepreneurial journey. How did they get started?
0: I am the last, absolutely last person that you would have ever thought that would become an entrepreneur. Um, I, I am, I have no tolerance for risk which is sort of hypocritical considering that now I I lead a small business. Uh, It really started when I went to business school and I, you know, I like to say when you, when you go to business school, the things that you're taught is really how to manage and run someone else's company, not necessarily how to start your own company. Uh, But I did take one class that was in, it was called new venture creation, really how to start your own small business. And that class and the people that I was in class with, which is a phenomenal group of people, really sort of um, unveiled the, the, what I thought was impossible and the mystery. It took out the mystique to where I really started to, to say, I think I can do that. And, uh, and so that first planted the seed. And then after business school, I got you know, the dream job that everybody hopes that they'll achieve by going to business school. And uh, that dream job lasted two years where unfortunately I was laid off and uh, I wasn't expecting it either. So I remember, you know, my, as my husband likes to say, when, you, when you're dealt a blow, uh, you've got 24 hours to feel sorry for yourself, to really just fall apart. And then when you wake up the next day, you need to be hitting the ground running and hustling. And so I really saw it for the opportunity that it was that in, in reality, I was, oops, sorry. I was very unhappy in the role. I was never home. I was working 100 hour weeks. I was, I remember being on a call during my daughter's birthday. She was blowing out the candles and I was on a work call. So I, I, I woke up and just saw the blessing that it was. And said, "I think you know, um, I think I can go out on my own." And sometimes, when there aren't jobs out there, you got to go make your job. Yeah. And so that that's that's just how I looked at it. And when I I really you know thought about what is it that I feel based off of my you know at, at the time almost twenty year experience in IT, what do I feel that people need the most? And what I realized that I've spent a lot of my tech career doing is holding vendors accountable to promised delivery, project management, program management, really being the voice of the customer versus you know letting the customer drive what they need versus letting the vendor drive what they need. And uh, when I started to talk to my inner circle, that really hit a nerve. So what I like to say is that every, everybody's got a bad story about IT. Like nobody says, I got this great story about IT and this happened and man, it was just like, such a great you experience. You a
1: dentist, you know, the same yeah, category, right? Yeah, they are
0: the same. They are absolutely the same because there's, you know, it's like, it, it can be like rocket science. You know, you are literally putting your trust and money into a vendor that is supposed to take your group, your team to the next level
1: now you see like, a solution for an it person You always saying yourself: is this the best solution for my company is this the best solution for you
0: absolutely absolutely and it's both and so um so my journey into entrepreneurship was accidental but it was also purposeful and that you know I, I made a decision of um what kind of what kind of company do i want you know, if I'm going to work 100 hours, I'm a workaholic. So if I'm going to work 100 hours a week, if I'm going to make a conscious choice to spend 100 hours a week away from my family, it better be worth it. And I couldn't think of a better way to do that than, than through my own business, but also from a genuine desire to help people, um, you know, deliver projects better.
1: So what's something you've learned along along your entrepreneurial journey that maybe you weren't expecting? It could be something good, something bad, but something that kind of took you by surprise.
0: Oh, gosh. Uh, the importance of marketing. I Whether I was in business school or, you know, my, my the initial stages of my entrepreneurship journey, I really underestimated the value of brand and marketing. I really thought that that was just something that I could, you know, I'm in tech. I can go build a website, and I did um i can go build a you know a business card but there's just something about having polish and uh to your brand to your message and that honestly what what when i finally outsourced my marketing and it was really refreshing to get a third person's viewpoint of my business and, you know, and, and remove the bias that I had about what made my business great, about the kind of customers and clients that I was looking for. So I, I would have never have thought that, you know, a year, almost two years ago when I started this business, that I would be investing in what I'm investing now in marketing. That would so have so. You're saying Bill and they
1: will come only watching the movies, right? <laughs>
0: it, it really does. It, it really, really does. I mean, you've got to really hit the pavement on brand awareness. And, you know, the reality is, is that uh, marketing can help do that. You don't need to go and spend 20, 50, hundred K to do that when you're initially starting out. I mean, but there is a, a small upfront investment that will pay off in the long run.
1: So talk about coming more in detail, like how it came about, what do you do? What's your vision for your company? <laughs> oh
0: goodness. Um, so my, you know, the, the overall, vision that I have for the company. Well, I I should say our overall mission is to make delivering technology projects better for our customer, you know, to ensure that the technology that they're investing so much time in ultimately provides the business value that they're looking for and is worth the cost that they're paying. Whether you're a small business, whether you're a Fortune 500 company, that's our primary mission. The second part of that is to be a place that um, to be a a diversified workforce and to be a home for military veterans who are looking to go into, who are looking to take their, quite frankly, the program and project management skills that they learned with boots on the ground to be able to have a home. Uh, My goal is that over the course of the next three years, you know, we'll have that our workforce will be 50 percent or more military veterans. Um, it is it is very uh, upsetting to me that the skills that military veterans have, whether they did five years, whether they retired, is undervalued. And my goal, because, I, you know, coming out of the military, I experienced that myself. It was very difficult for me to find a job. And I was in I was in the the tech branch of the army, you know, I mean, um, but there's there continues what I believe to be an undervaluing of the military experience. And uh, and so my my vision, my goal for our company is to be is, is to be a place that employs military veterans first and foremost.
1: Star. So two part question. Part one, what's your target demographic? Part two, is that your actual customer so far?
0: My target demographic in terms of customer base is uh, CEOs or CTOs, CIOs, who are looking to uh, enhance their product or capability through digital innovation. Does
1: the size of the company matter?
0: The size of the company does not matter. Uh, A bulk of our clients, though, have been large enterprise businesses. So we were very fortunate in the first year that, um, you know, I would say about 85% of our clients were large publicly traded companies. Um, And we are, you know, we are pivoting also into the state and federal government space. But at the same time, um, you know, we do provide consulting services to small to medium sized businesses in the areas of contract management and vendor management. So really, you know, I, I would say that the, the target customer base that we that I sent out to really cater to is remains are for the most part is is our existing customer base for sure.
1: Yes. Um, and you're based in Austin, but I'm yes. guessing you're nationwide.
0: We are. Uh, I've worked uh, in, you know, Virginia. Uh, we, we have the capability absolutely to go nationwide. Our initial expansion has been in the Austin and San Antonio area.
1: And how many people do you have in your team?
0: Uh, we currently have five people, um, and you know. But I like to say for the longest time I've been a solopreneur.
1: <laughs> and then, how do you um, go about getting your customers? Are you talking about marketing, or is it word of mouth? A strong A lot of it plan? is word of
0: mouth. I mean, the first year, um, you know, I was just uh, informing, uh, you know, uh, friends uh, through my network on LinkedIn. And, uh, and that's when I started to get calls. So I was very fortunate that I have, over the past 20 years, I have a fantastic network. And so, but now, you know, the the biggest push is to get business in areas where I don't have a network or, or a personal or professional connection. So that that's where marketing has significantly helped us out in that area. Again, you know, if we are pitching to these larger companies, I want them to be able to go to our website and to, to see, and you know, it is about that polish. It is about that look that Corbin solutions has the capability to
1: handle. handle,
0: Absolutely. You know, whether it's a federal agency, whether it's a state agency or whether it's a commercial company, you know, at the end of the day, your website, I believe is your virtual business card. And so that, that's where, you know, um, I would say that in in a, in a few weeks we're going to be unveiling a whole new uh, a whole new website and everything.
1: So talk about this challenge. I mean, the bigger the company, the longer the sales process, right? Yeah. So how do you deal with that? You might you might you know, quote unquote, close the deal today. You might get the money like six months from now. How do you handle that?
0: That's cash flow was first and foremost when I started out, and it has really saved us, especially through the COVID pandemic. Um, You know, in the first year, I spent money as if that money wasn't going to be there the next day. So being really conscientious about how, you know, how we bring on people, you know, I mean, at this stage in our company, it's 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 1099, really, uh, because of just the you know, you want to make sure that especially as we go into government contracts that I have longevity longer than a three to six month long effort. To you know, have a long-term employee, and so for us, um, we have to have a diversified client pool. Meaning, you know, when you start looking into the state and the federal government for clients, that's a marathon, not a sprint. You know, I can engage a commercial client today, and we can have a statement of work in a week, a contract already done, and I can have someone working on that effort. Uh, A few days after that contract is signed with the government, it is a, you know, I could submit a response to a request for proposal. I may not hear about it for a few weeks to a month. You know, there's there is just that longer that longer waiting period. So for us, managing that is really looking at cash flow, but also having a diversified client pool we have, you know, between commercial and federal and state. So that we can weather whatever storm that hits.
1: So has this ever happened? Two situations. One situation you put in like two crust proposals, two different things. You both say no, right? So you're ahead in business. Yeah. Other end, you put in two and they both say yes. You're like, how am I going to do both of them? <laughs> I don't have the resources to restart, do both of them. How do you handle that?
0: The partnerships has been really integral. So um, as part, you know, so Corbin Solutions is in the Veterans and Residents cohort 2020 uh, B, I want to say, uh, through Bunker Labs. And one of the things that uh, made me apply to that program was specifically to develop partnerships. I knew that we wanted to go after state and federal government contracts. I knew that in order to, you know, if we won a contract, we knew we'd have to scale really fast if if we won it. And so the, really the best way to do that when you're a small business is through partnerships, especially when you're going with the state and federal government where you don't have prior, you know, experience in the government realm. We've have, we have plenty of prior experience in the commercial realm. But when you're going after contracts, the federal government's like a chicken or the egg thing. You know, they're really looking for that prior experience at the government level. So for us, it's really been, it was the decision to, for example, we, you know, we entered recently into a mentor and protege partnership with a well established health IT company that's been doing business with the federal government for the past 10 years. So you really, it's, it's first deciding, I can't, I can't do this on my own, right? Finding a community that you can network it with. And then through that community, hopefully finding partners that can help you scale your business.
1: Dara, how do you go about qualifying your potential customers?
0: That's a great question. Um, I really, you know, I I always say that, uh, you know, I I always go, I always look into initial discussions, really trying to best understand what it is that they're looking for. Um, And I always start with a discovery session. Uh, You know, I, it's funny. I had one client uh, who was with a, Uh, insurance company, a publicly traded insurance company. They were actually an international insurance company. And I happened uh, to know a member of their board who recommended that I assist them with their agile transformation. And the first thing the CEO said when we were sitting down having a conversation like we are now was, you're only here because the board member recommended you. We will do business together if I like you. Uh, So I thought that was really interesting but it it does hit in that a lot of it is just the initial relationship building, um and then it goes into the capability, and then it really you know I hone in on is what you're looking for something myself or through a partner, I can ultimately provide and uh you know, but also too, I think one of the things that when you are really betting a customer, if it's a right fit, if you can provide the services, and I think this is key for small business owners is sometimes we get in just one focus. Like, I can only do one thing. And so I'm seeking a customer that is looking for that one thing. When you're starting out, you know, while it is really important to have your pitch, you know, we can provide this, but it's also very important, especially when you're starting out you're trying to gain traction and credibility, to really look, you know, well, what else can I provide this customer? They're looking for X. Can I also provide Z based off of existing partnerships or capabilities that we have? So a lot of times I'm really looking, was well, the customer looking for X, Y, and Z that I know that I can provide? Or are they looking for A and B that's completely outside of the scope of services that we can provide?
1: Star, how do you make sure you bring on the right talent to your team? Like, you no, know, anyone can do a portfolio, put some of their resume. Like, how do you qualify they're actually who they are and they have the skills to, yeah. to make your team better.
0: Uh, you know, my recommendation really is, you know, outside of the interviewing process and all of those types of things, you know, you, everybody presents their best self yeah. in the interview the, process. Their best self. Yeah. Their best self. <laughs> um, it is rare that, that the, I that ever at my best self. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I have, I have been in the unfortunate position of, you know, of firing people, of letting people go who just did not work out. So I think when you're starting off, it's always good to have a probationary period. I also I'm, I'm also a firm believer and I learned this in the military. You know, when, when I was in the army, I never had a soldier, nor did I ever go into a new position where I wasn't given an initial counseling by either I, I did it or, you know, my supervisor did it where it was like, hey, star, here's your job. Here's your role. Here's what I'm going to evaluate you on. Right. And, and really that should be a copy of the job description. So I, I strongly believe that when you hire someone, there should be first a probationary period, whether it be 30 days, 60 days, six months, whatever works for you. But then I also firmly believe that on their within their first week of being hired, you need to have an initial counseling sounds really bad. Uh, you know, but an initial job review, where you are reviewing exactly what you're expecting from them and how you will be evaluating them and that you're not going to evaluate them at the end of the probationary period. If it's six months, for example, you really need to be doing one-on-ones, if not weekly, no more, no less than once a month where you're providing them feedback on what's going well. It's almost like the AAR that we did in the military. What's going areas that are going well, areas that can be improvement and then what they need from you to be a success. And I really think that, you know, by having that, by showing that investment in the employee, you know, you're really going to gauge pretty quickly whether or not that person is a right fit. But then also provide them an opportunity to become the right fit for your company.
1: So start having done tech for a company and you walked in and you're like, whoa, this is so bad. Even I can't fix this.
0: Yes, I I unfortunately have, Um, and a lot of it is really people problems. It's poor leadership. It's poor management. It's uh, a lot of it, most of the time, you know, if the team is performing poorly, you know, most of the time that's not because it's a bad team. It's because there's a bad leader. There's little to no direction. And a lot of times in lieu of, you know, I used to like to say in the military, in lieu of direction, you're going to take action. May not be the best action, but you're going to you're going to react. You got to move forward, act. right? Yeah, exactly. You might you be moving in the wrong
1: direction, but at yes, you moving.
0: Absolutely. And so, um, usually, I mean, most of the time, you know, as I like to say, technology, there's always some solution. It's like math. It's a one or a zero, right? It, it, it either can be done or it can't be done. If it can't be done, maybe there's a different way to do it, right? There's always a solution to tech or to a project, whether again, whether that's to be to continue to pivot or to quit, right? But people, that's not black and white. And so a lot of times, if you know, if you've got a poor team and you're a manager, rather than always placing the blame on the team, I think as a manager, and this is what I've seen when I've gone into companies where it's like, I don't know if this company can be helped, whether as a consultant, or as an executive in a former life, it's really, you know, how is how are requirements and job rules and how is that team being supported by management and leadership? And also another reason why I started this company, why I decided to not go back into the corporate world after I was laid off was I, I've been out in the military um, longer than I than I was in. And hands down, I to this day. The best leadership I've ever seen in the tech world has been from the military. I've unfortunately seen more examples of very poor leadership in the civilian world than I ever did in the military. And so part of, the, my, part of what drives me and my company is to be the kind of company that I would want to work for, that people that I know and trust would want to work for. because unfortunately, people who make it into management or the C level, that's just because their time and grade, you know, they looked good on a resume. Nobody goes, you know, it's very rare for companies to require management and leadership training before you take on a management or leadership role.
1: Yeah, in the Army you take for it's granted, required. right? It's required.
0: Yeah, it's required. You don't, you know, to become an NCO, when you're an E5, E6, there are stages, the NCO leadership academies that you have to go through. When, you, when you're an officer and you're going to go become a company commander, you have to go to a course you know, before you take command, that teaches you the tools to become. Also, a right military.
1: Commander. I don't think most in the military. I do rank is. You don't get up in front of people at least one time and give a class, some kind of training. You will get up. In, you're going to get up and probably speak in front of people. And definitely, you know, absolutely. But most civilians don't get that. Absolutely. I
0: I mean, the kind of leader that I am, I like to say it's twofold. It's because I've learned, I've seen firsthand what not to do, Um and and because I had the privilege of working for some of the most amazing. Leaders when I was when I was in the army, who, quite frankly, you know, were this might be a, a shock to people who aren't with the military, um, who were the largest proponents of women in technology that, that I have ever seen. And, uh, you know, and it's it's definitely a culture. That, that I really do miss that I feel like is. Yeah, lying. I do
1: the Army gets enough credit, or military in general does not get a credit for the diversity and the collaboration they,
0: they get. They, they a they lot of people say this not. name
1: 19, you know, what's the guy's name? Um, Goma Powell, of military. Yeah, absolutely. The Durson yelling, but it's nowhere like that, you know? It's it, nowhere it's like so that. It's so
0: unfortunate. Um, I, when, I, when I tell people this, they're, it's always, it always comes with shock, but it's absolutely true. I had, I had more women leaders in the Army than I've ever had in the civilian world. You know, when you look at that, I've been in the civilian world for 15 years. I was in the army for 10 years. And the entire time that I've been in the civilian world, I've never had a female boss. Wow. Like never. And, but when I was in the military, I had three, you know, it's, uh, who were a significant rank that I reported directly to. I had the same number of women, bosses that i had male bosses
1: yeah i think i did nothing I, I think i did it the, the same way but it's pretty even yeah
0: yeah and, and and just and and the diversity as well and but you're absolutely right the, the military even to this day is seen as the option of last resort mm. i think for our young people which is really unfortunate
1: so talk a little bit about bunk labs and veterans' resident that you're taking part in right now mm. how do you find out about it and what, what's been the benefit
0: uh, I found out about it just, just through my regular veteran circles. It's, it's pretty well known, especially if you're embarking on entrepreneurship. They have a really fantastic media presence. Uh, their marketing is, is very sound. And, uh, I, you know, as COVID, uh, was, was hitting, I, I knew immediately we were going to take a massive hit. And, uh, because we were, all of our customer base was in the commercial side and, uh, so our customers saw a significant drop in their own revenue, and uh, and so like most small businesses, unfortunately, you know the 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 work you know really took a hit. But what I but what didn't take a hit was our contracts in the government, and so it really was a wake up call that we needed to do more of a pivot. And um, uh, into the government space, we really needed to diversify our client our client base. And so, when I decided to apply to VIR, the goal was to take our company to the next level, to be able to uh, create partnerships with other companies that were associated with VIR, so that we could, uh, you know, just be a more attractive company and uh, for state and federal contracts. And so VIR has absolutely uh, met those expectations in the sense that through the cohort, uh, met a partner who is very well established, who is an ambassador with our cohort, um, developed a mentor and protege, and, you know, uh, and then also in the cohort met someone else who was just like me, looking to take their work to the next level and expand their work with the federal government. And so now the three of us are our partners. And there's just no way that I would honestly be able to um, respond to several of the proposals that we've responded to uh, because I wouldn't have sort of that larger scope of capability. I would have had a more narrow sc- scope of capability if it was just myself.
1: Start being an entrepreneur, you know, it's not easy. It's difficult. Can you talk about how being a veteran has it helped you or not helped you? And what you oh, said, yeah. I actually have get my plug in my bag for my computer. Goes okay. Dead.
0: Yes. <laughs> uh, should I, should I continue yeah. on or okay. Um, the, I, I would not be a successful entrepreneurship today, honestly, if, if, it, if it weren't for my experience in the military. I think that entrepreneurship and the risk and the reward or lack of reward at times uh, would be very difficult to handle if, uh, if I had not been in the military. I think what the Army taught me, I mean, I enlisted at 19, was grit. And perseverance. And when you and your husband have done back to back deployments to the Middle East, uh, a lot of things compared to that don't seem as hard. <laughs>
1: That's the one thing, like people will say all the time, entrepreneurship is hard, it's hard. I, I'll say, well, let me push back a little bit. It's not easy, difficult, but is it as hard as like the stuff you had to do in the military? The decision yeah. make? It's, it's not even close. Like I tell people all the time, to get mad, like, If being a startup an entrepreneur is the hardest thing you do in your life, you've had a very blessed life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, being a parent is hard. You know, uh, being an entrepreneur is hard. Being in the military is hard. I mean, a lot. I think a lot of people, what what makes entrepreneurship very difficult to for people is, you know, you're not always going to have a salary. You're not always going to get paid. There are days that you're just working to keep, you know, the company afloat. And so that's why entrepreneurship is hard because of the risk. Right. Um, and that's why a lot of people think that entrepreneurship is a young man's game. Right. Uh, you know, I'm middle aged and I decided to become an entrepreneur. I mean, my, my sole goal in life was to first, you know, I was going to retire in the military and get my pension and then go have a second career like my father. Um, you know, but, you know, uh, a, a tour in Iraq, really everything I wanted to do, I thought I would do in 20 years. I did in five when I was active duty. So I was like, OK, I'm good. Um and you know, my husband and I, being dual military, it just it took a it took a, a big a big toll. Yeah, exactly. He was he was an infantry officer, and so we were like two ships passing in the night. And um, and so you know, the when I when I got out of the army, I remember saying, I want the most boring, predictable job, and in twenty years, I want to collect my pension and get my gold watch. And you know, when you've done military service and you you've seen. You know the things that we see. You know you're just not satisfied with with being bored and collecting the gold watch after 20 years. So, um, you know there's there's something about the military that is so humbling that our definition of hard it's it's a it's a it's a very definition than than most people. Um, but I think also too as veterans, you know, considering the work that we do is risky you know, from a survival point, but it's also a very stable job, right? You get your health benefits, you retire, you get a pension, you know, you're always going to get paid, you know? So there's a stability in that, that makes entrepreneurship very scary to go after because the, that stability is not always there, but it's not, it's, it's, it's not harder than serving a tour in Iraq or Afghanistan. No.
1: And one thing the military does a good job too, and most people realize in our military, like, you know, what, what's the, the thing, you know, knock down 10 tank up 11? The military is good at, you know, knock you down 10 times and help you get up 11 times, right?
0: Absolutely. If you can look up, you can get up. I mean, that, that, that's, that's, that's my, uh, my mantra.
1: Yes. So for your company, any, any uh, plans on expanding it anytime soon, or are you going to stay where we are right now?
0: I think we're going to stay where we're at right now. Um, You know, I hopefully are we have a six to 12 month plan to really break into the federal government. And so, again, like I said, when you're when you're going after government contracts, that's a marathon, not a sprint. And so, you know, but at the same time, you get that one contract, you can go from zero employees to 25 almost overnight. And so that that to that for me really is our our plan in the next year is to expand our presence in the government. And, uh, you know, so on the state side, we're really focusing in on the uh, Dallas, Austin and San Antonio areas, just because that's the areas that, that, that we know the most, especially, you know, most of the state agencies are headquartered here in Austin. So uh, and it's a market that I'm very familiar in. But then also pushing into the federal government, so I think like a lot of small businesses, due to COVID, you know, we're monitoring our operating expenses and our cash flow, you know, to the detail. <laughs> so growth, I, I, you know, it's a it's a long term strategy for sure.
1: So, start so you talked earlier really about working hundred hour, you know, weeks for, for corporate for corporate America. A lot of entrepreneurs take pride, you know, I work hundred hours a week in my startup. Gosh, yeah. Some some people work like nine to 5, 40 hours a week, you know. Some people working off seven days on two days off all these different things what do you do
0: i I really try to have the balance between work and family when you're an entrepreneur you're never off you know um, you gotta you gotta put food on the table so the hustle is 24 seven but I you know my kids are in middle school and high school and if you know what are the benefits of Again, like I said, being laid off was the awareness of you know I put in a hundred hours a week outside of a very great paycheck. What what you know what did it get me? What was the cost of that? And the cost was health. The cost. I remember when I I remember the day that I got laid off. It was in the morning, and I remember sitting in my car, reeling from the shock of it, and then going. I can go have lunch with my daughters today at school, and I showed up, and Did they, they pass
1: out because they saw you. They, they
0: couldn't believe it. Like,
1: what are you doing what here? They,
0: what, that was the first thing my youngest said. What are you doing here? And the oldest said, "We haven't. You haven't had lunch with us in over two years. That's really sad that I couldn't even take time to out of two years, you know, because I was putting all of my energy." into a job that didn't, you know, that again, provided, you know, absolute stability, I should say in a monetary sense to my family, but instability as well, it would provide more stability than stability. And so when I went, you know, being an entrepreneur, yes, I work just as much, you know, I work on the week, I'm always thinking about the business, like I, I every day always I'm hustling, on, always be hustling, Right but my kids especially with covid i am home because i can't do my work remotely i am home my kids see that i am working towards a business that does provide a greater value i'm i'm home when they get home 9 times out of 10 now right i i can help them with their homework which was a luxury that i didn't have because i was traveling before was coming home after dinner you know um And so for me, the balance is while I'm working a lot and my children do see that they can also see the value of, oh, because it's mommy's, mommy's building her business. She's working hard for herself. And when you've got daughters, that, that more than words is, is profound. Star,
1: what do you do to make sure you take care of yourself?
0: Friends. Um, I have a core, you know, so, so two things. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a mother always, right? A mother and a wife always, um, but I've I've always been a proponent. You know, at the end of the day, the, the relationship that I have with my husband also takes priority. We've been married twenty years, and that's why I joke: if if he and I can survive back to back deployments in Iraq with a, with an infant at home, um, you know, there is there isn't much we have not seen in twenty years, um, but. He's always reminding me, he's like, hey, honey, you know, can can that email wait? Let's just have dinner, you know. Um, and so for me, the taking, you know, taking uh, time to, you know, invest in my kids. But at the end of the day, those kids are going to grow and they're going to leave. And you should want that. Right. And then I'm going to be and then it's just going to be my husband and I. So instead of waiting, then I really consciously. Focus on investing time in him and really valuing okay, does this email need to be sent now or can it be sent you know after the kids are in bed um, so the time management piece is is really important and then having friends having friends who are entrepreneurs uh, having friends who also have nothing to do with your business and uh, you know genuinely setting aside time, right? A lot of people say, well, I don't have the time. Well, if your water heater broke and you had water <laughs> gushing out all over the place, you're going to find the time. It becomes priority
1: number one. It becomes priority fast.
0: number one. And when you're in entrepreneurship, the beauty of having your own business is you do set the priorities. So instead of your boss, when you're working for another company and that person setting the priorities, you you know, there's two people that set the priorities in your business, your customers and you. Right, and your customers have less of a say than you do at the end of the day, and so I think it really is conscientiously making a choice to find the time
1: so I start you know entrepreneurs, you have a lot going on, you know a lot of different projects, people you gotta meet with, you know your mother, you know wife friends, other stuff. How do you prioritize all that like do you have like a Google run? Do. do you um, so win
0: I, it? I do. I, I practice what I preach. So um, you know, I'm a certified Scrum Master, product owner, all all that fun Agile certifications. And uh, so I time box my my work. And uh, you know, even though I like to say every every hour, every minute, I'm hustling. Um, I I every morning at, when I was in the army, I was an aide uh, to the first division. Um, uh, I'm sorry, 1st Cavalry Division Assistant Commander. And uh, I was always having to prioritize work. I had this uh, leader's book that I would create little boxes. And, like, my whole to-do task was just – I was managing his schedule. I was managing our schedule. It, you, you, you had to be organized uh, in that role. And that work has carried on to me even 20 years later – to where um, if I have a leader's book to this day, it's a, like a moleskin black notebook. And if you were to look at it, you would see at, on Sunday night, and I'm not lying, I do this. It uh, drives my husband crazy. Sunday night, I write out a master list for the week of everything that needs to be done. And then Monday morning and every morning of the week, I then write out, have a sticky note next to that where I write out, here are the tasks that I'm going to achieve today. So and that, that's scrum. So I'm practicing agile principles by time boxing the work, determining what I need to accomplish for that week, and then tracking the progress every day towards checking off everything on that box. But it really, you know, and I, I, I never finish that list, you know. And then the next, you know, on Sunday night, I'm pulling stuff that wasn't done, and I'm adding it to the list. But then I also say, all right, you know, kids are on the bus at this hour. They get home at this hour. And I, I consciously, I want to be there for them to help them with homework, and I want to have dinner with the family if I'm not in Austin or if I'm not with a client, if I'm working from home. So I will even block out high-priority items that have to get done that day. I'll even go to my calendar, and I'll block out, that for this hour you are going to do this. And it is. It's 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 controlling my schedule to that nth degree is how I'm able to, uh, you know, manage the schedule that I have today.
1: And yeah, so for those who don't have any military background, I've covered what Star just said. So Star was an aide or a general. For those who don't know, only like the top zero, zero percent of people get picked to be general aides. And I did an HR on the army, so I kind of know this. Fifty <laughs> percent of aides go on to become general. So like mm-hmm. Star was the superstar in the military superstar. Now I mean, you did they don't you no know, does don't become general aides, right? The top nuts to become aides, yeah. especially the first cavalry division. So she's like she's a superstar, no doubt. Well, thank you. So Star, can you? Uh, give us your social media links for you and your companies so people can reach out to you
0: sure uh, so you can follow us on LinkedIn uh, you can just uh, you know search for Corbin Solutions Group and then our website is www.corbinsolutionsgroup.com
1: and for our listeners we have the links to our social media on the show notes you can find the show notes at www.cabinthxlblog.com and be sure to share this episode with your friends Star we will come to the end of our talk can you give us any advice and wisdom or anything you want to talk about
0: Again, you know, I think as as an entrepreneurship, just remembering that you do have control over your schedule. It's not selfish to take some personal me time and that, you know, at the end of the day, the customers will be there, but the people you love might not always be. So it's important to invest in your personal life as much as you invest in your business. You are your business.
1: Star, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank
0: you, Jason. It's a pleasure.
1: And to listeners, thank you for your time as well. Remember to be great every day.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jason Kavnis Experience. Be sure to connect with us across social media at Kavnis HR. Thank you. And remember to be great every day. Don't you know, bump it up. You've got to pump it up. Don't you know, pump it up. You've got to pump it, it up. Don't you know, pump it up.